ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. The mango industry can no longer use methyl bromide to control fruit flies. This ban, it starts today. So where to next for the industry? In a moment, we'll be speaking to grower Leo Scaleros. Also today, we join the team at the Royal Flying Doctor Service for some training in Alice Springs. It's so important that everybody knows what this patient's in for from the beginning all the way through to the point that they arrive in the hospital um, and that there's a little bit of shared understanding about the challenges for each of the craft groups that are involved. And before 1.30, you'll be getting the latest news from day two of the North Australia Savannah Fire Forum. This is all coming up on today's Country Hour. Hope you can stick around. Just quickly, as we go to air this afternoon, the Stewart Highway is open, but to high-clearance four-wheel drives only. There's water over the road in various locations between Renner Springs and Tennant Creek. Also this afternoon on the Barclay Highway, again, it is open, but to high-clearance four-wheel drives only between the Stewart Highway and the Barclay Homestead. So if you own a little two-door, two-wheel drive sort of operation, you've got to be across this information. You need to be aware of this. There's been some small vehicles washed off the highway already this week, according to authorities. And police are asking motorists to heed these warnings and stay up to date. So just repeating, the Stewart Highway is open, but to high clearance four-wheel drives only between Renner Springs and Tennant Creek. And the same applies on the Barclay between the Stewart Highway and the Barclay Homestead. Stay up to date via the Road Report NT. And we will be speaking to the Weather Bureau at five past one to get the very latest. Now... Let's talk about the big news out today. That's today's fresh food, people. Yep, the chief executive of Woolworths, Brad Baducci, has announced that he is retiring later this year in a surprise announcement. And, of course, it comes just a few days after his disastrous interview aired on the ABC's Four Corners program in which Mr Banducci walked out of the interview during questions about price gouging. Here's just a little reminder of that moment. It is an incredibly competitive market. The risk people have is... I'm sorry, the former head of the Competition Commission says his words are that we have... by the way. I I don't think you would impugn his integrity and his understanding of competition law. I'm just saying the world has got much more competitive. He retired 18 months ago. He's not... Okay, let's... Can we take that out? Is that okay? I should... I mean, he, he is retired, but I, I shouldn't have said that, Angus. Are, you, are we going to leave it in there if we are? Well, I mean, if, if we're on the record. You said it. I mean, you know, let's let's move on. But, yeah. Yeah, no, um, I'm, I think I'm done, guys. It wasn't a great look. This announcement of Mr Banducci's retirement, it comes, of course, at a time where there's numerous inquiries being held looking at the power of the supermarkets and allegations of price gouging. Professor Alan Fells, a former boss of the ACCC, says it's unclear whether Mr Banducci's retirement means someone else will now have to front up to these inquiries 
and answer questions on behalf of Woolies. Sarah Dingle spoke to Professor Fells just a short time ago. Well, it follows so soon on that disastrous interview that he walked out in the middle of that it's probably broadly connected with the fact that whatever his commercial skills, his PR skills, have not been on great display recently. Um, More broadly, the company has been on the receiving end of a lot of criticism of possible uh, market, you know, additional markups, price gouging, if you like. Also, just looking ahead for the next year or two, they're going to be under close public scrutiny with all the public inquiries and so on. And maybe he or the company judged that he wasn't maybe the very best person to do that. Well, there's a lot in that. I I want you to unpack some of that for me. How much of this does have to do with that Four Corners interview which aired on Monday night this week where he walked out? Because he has done a lot of media in his career. Could one interview really have sealed the deal? Well, it was a disaster, that interview. It was absolute, you know, public relations 101 disaster. You never walk out of TV interviews. And the only instances I've seen in the last five or ten years of people doing that have generally led to things like their resignation or disastrous effects on their reputation. So it probably was the trigger point for a deeper concern about the PR side. Also, over the last few years, he's done a lot of PR, but I don't know that it's cut through that much um, because the public concern about high prices in supermarkets is greater than ever. Um, The interviews he's done up till now, I mean, they've been okay, but they haven't had much to say that really cuts through. Now, what will this mean for the various inquiries into the supermarket sector? There's one in the Senate, there's one in Queensland, there's an ACCC investigation. Given that Brad Banducci is stepping down, will it be his successor who fronts these things? And if so, will they have the institutional knowledge required to actually provide full answers? Well, that's a pretty good question. And the answers are not clear. Uh, They have appointed... Sandra Bardwell as a kind of fill-in. Um, it sounds to me like they may have done succession planning, but suddenly realised that maybe they've not been looking for a person who's good on dealing with the new challenges to Woolworths, and so they'll have to search around for a while. In the meantime, who will front the inquiries? I don't know if it'll be him or the person... Ms. Bardwell, or or what? Um, I suspect it won't be him. Woolworths has told the ASX that, as you say, Amanda Bardwell will be his successor. They say this comes after an extensive international search, which I presume means they've known this for some time. What do we know of Amanda Bardwell? Uh, personally, I know nothing, I'm sorry to say. The Brad Banducci announcement comes on the same day uh, as Woolworths profits results are out. Those results, understandably, have been overshadowed by Brad Banducci's announcement, but they do show that Woolworths has posted a 2.5% rise in first-half profits. What does that tell you? That tends to confirm that they have 
been continuing to add markups uh, and extra profit margins to the cost increases that they have incurred and that the fact that um, consumers are feeling it and the cost of living has not really affected their prices. That is Professor Alan Fells, former boss of the ACCC. And yes, Woolworths has announced on the ASX today that it is promoting Amanda Bardwell to this head job after an extensive international search process. Ms Bardwell has worked for Woolies for 23 years and is currently heading up its subdivision that's called Woolies X. And yes, the half-yearly financial results are out today for Woolworths. It has recorded a $781 million loss, but that's due to two major write-downs. But excluding those, the company, as mentioned, has posted a 2.5% rise in underlying profits. As we go to air this afternoon, though, the share price is not looking flash for Woolies. It's down, down, down down by 8.2%. Ouch. That's today's fresh food, people. The Queensland Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association, it says the power imbalance between farmers and the major supermarkets is forcing some farmers to leave the industry. That's how bad it's got. The association has made 36 recommendations to the Senate inquiry into supermarket pricing. Its chief executive, Rachel Chambers, says this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to improve the fresh food supply chain so that farmers can be profitable and consumers can afford fresh food. The recommendations, I think, um, were interesting in in our submission in that we're saying look this is great and it's lovely to be asked five questions in any terms of reference but guys this is far more complex than you ever imagined so we've given recommendations for further investigation including the role of supermarkets in how they themselves contribute to oversupply and thus waste to um, investigate how actual grower cost of production is factored into negotiations, to um, investigate the quantum of supermarket cost shifting to growers. So growers are paying for pallets and um, stickers and their own modern slavery reporting. And those that modern slavery reporting is only due to these um, supermarkets having a a successful model that incorporates more than a $100 million turnover a year, that then triggers them into a, a range of reporting requirements that now the growers have to pay for. So it's all of these things that we're saying, look, part of that cost of, of production for us is we have no way of pushing that up the chain. So there's this blockage of profit and that's where this whole investigation came from is that it seems that there's a whole range of profit that goes to the retailers, but that's their model. You said this has been decades of issues, perhaps even generational, these kinds of tactics and and these issues within the fruit and vegetable sector. Do you believe that the Senate inquiry will be enough to evoke long-term change? The Senate inquiry alone only addresses some of some of the issues. I think um, you know, and there's multiple inquiries going on, um, both at state and federal level. I think to answer that question is nationally, industry representatives are all over the fact that this we are in a once in a generation opportunity to get this right and the level of oversight and 
intensity of conversations that we have to have this year as an industry with our decision makers is unlike ever before. So I don't think that's lost on growers. And in fact, I would say growers who potentially at the end of last year are saying to me, you know, good on you, mate. We know that you, you know, we know that you're trying and, um, you know, we can only hope now are actually saying this is the only ray of hope that we're clinging on to is that all of these inquiries together actually force a sustainable change in the industry because there is no room for the status quo to continue. And, and, you know, anyone who's been following this for a great period of time looks at just changes in the industry that have happened over time. And I know in, in 2008, one of the retailers had a CEO who made a fundamental change and they said, consumers wanted stuff that wasn't in season. It was, a, it was a, di- a desire of the consumer. So what that then meant is as the retailer, we're going to supply that to consumers nationally. What then that meant for growers is that then they were told, well, instead of growing a, a, a banana which grows really well in Queensland for nine months of the year, guess what, guys? You're now going to grow it for 12 months of the year because we want, you know, bananas for 12 months. So then what that means for the grower is, oh, crap, to keep being a supplier to the retailer that now wants my commodity for 12 months of the year, I now have to plant 50% more trees. <laughs> and then, and now I've got those trees, the other months of the year where, you know, they're vast in quantities, now I'm getting less money. And then it was like, how did that happen? How did a decision that was supposed to ensure a good result for the consumer end up so badly for the grower. And these are the kind of decisions that have gone through over decades that now we're looking at the result of it, wondering how we got here, but it's not until you go back and you start following the decisions that were made and start understanding the intent behind the decisions that you've got a possibility of coming out with a potential solution. And that's all I'm saying about this has been a long time in the making. It's going to take a while to unpack. The worst thing we can do is throw a blanket solution at the lot of it and say, February next year, say, oh, we've asked five questions. We've made three rulings and now everyone is happy um, and food production is secure into the future. It's not going to work like that. It is far more complicated. That's Rachel Chambers, the Chief Executive of the Queensland Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association, speaking to Lydia Burton. It is 16 to 1. This is the Country Hour. Do you remember last year, if you tune into the Country Hour a lot, you should remember that the story about how the mango industry was banned from using the chemical dimethylate to control fruit flies as a post-harvest treatment. It was banned. And so when that happened, a lot of mango growers in the Territory went and bought some methyl bromide so they could use it to control fruit flies and gain access to the markets in WA, South Australia, Tasmania. Well, guess what? As of today, mango growers can no longer use methyl bromide. It's been banned as well. So... The industry's lost dimethylate as a post-harvest treatment. It's now lost methyl bromide. So where to next? We'll ask grower Leo Scleros next. After this song, and it's been requested by Brian, keen to hear a bit of Toby Keith this Wednesday lunchtime. Now, as of today, 
the mango industry will no longer be allowed to use methyl bromide to control fruit flies. The decision follows research into the chemical, which indicated it was not suitable for mangoes and did not provide sufficient control for Queensland fruit fly. As a result, the fruit fly-free states of South Australia, Tasmania and Western Australia have updated their import conditions to no longer accept mangoes that have used this treatment and the same ban will come into play for plums next month. Leo Scaleros is the president of the NT Mango Industry Association and says after dimethoate got banned last year as a post-harvest treatment, a lot of growers then went and turned to methyl bromide. Well, basically, um, last year we had Demethwaite come off the label and our option going into Western Australia was uh, methyl bromide. That was then had some tests done and uh, found that it wasn't an effective treatment on mangoes and plums uh, in controlling fruit fly. So that's now been taken off the label and we're looking for alternative forms of treatments for entry into this, some states. So the industry lost the ability to use dimethoate as a post-harvest treatment. A lot of growers then went and grabbed some methyl bromide, and now, as of today, uh, that's been banned. So what are the alternatives from here, Leo? Uh, well, we have, we have uh, CTMO1, which is field sprays, with uh, dimethoate and uh, hard green protocol for South Australia. So that, that's not too much of an issue. Uh, entry into Western Australia is a, a larger issue and um, we, have, we have irradiation and vapour heat treatment currently and the department and industry is, is looking to get CTM01 passed for Western Australia, but that might take some time. I guess you're hoping that's all organised in time for the next mango season. Yes, definitely. Well, the other the other two forms are, are uh, an expensive treatment and it also some transport logistics there will will cause large dramas trying to tr- trying to swing fruit around the place. So in terms of the bottom line for mango growers, how big of a deal is it to lose first dimethoate as a post-harvest treatment and now to lose methyl bromide? Well, I mean, costs of some of these treatments can go up to $7 a tray, um, which a lot of growers are just struggling to, to clear uh, a few dollars a tray after cost. So it'll make the, them unviable basically to run. And uh, if they can't go into these other states, then they'll have to send the fruit across to other states that um, that don't require entry for fruit fly, uh, which will cause basically a glut in the market and drop the market prices. So, a lot of mangoes uh, going to New South Wales and and Victoria, and, and not much going to say WA. Yes, and Queensland as well. So they they all have. The, the fruit fly of concern, so so we don't need any protocols to enter those states. Do you think there will be growers that will put Western Australia in particular in the too hard basket? Most definitely, most definitely, especially if it'll be a you know five to seven dollar cost treatment, or they'll have to move fruit from 
Darwin down to Victoria and then across to Western Australia. At least this ban comes in today, late February, at the end of the, the national mango season. Is that, is that at least something that you've got quite a few months down to, to work De- this out? Definitely, definitely a much better outcome. And uh, we have a few a few teams working hard on trying to get um, things passed, as well as the irradiation plants and vapour heat treatment plants um, looking looking to help industry out if worse comes to worse and, and we can't get CTMO1 passed for Western Australia. And the national mango harvest is coming to an end. There's not many mangoes left to be picked. What, what would be your take on the season just gone, Leah? Well, it was a... A very hard season for for most of the NT growers uh, growing KPs. Prices were were significantly higher in most regions. Uh, although Darwin did have a few transport issues, which which caused a bit of an, a problem in the market, and um, their their price sort of fell away in the Darwin season. So um, another tough year for, for NT growers. Some fared very well uh, with early fruit, but on the most a hard season right across Australia. That's Leo Scalieros, who's the president of the NT Mango Industry Association. The news today is that methyl bromide can no longer be used on mangoes to control fruit flies, and the same will apply for plums as of next month. On the text line, Sprinkle says, Matt, do me a favour. Shout out to the workers at Humpty Doo Cash for Cans. Done. Do you often feel overwhelmed by the daily news cycle? Too many headlines with too little context? Well, join me, Sam Hawley, for ABC News Daily. You know, there's middlemen involved and you have to make sure that the farmers are getting a good deal. A podcast that walks you through one story per episode to help you with a deeper understanding of the issues affecting your world, all delivered in a comprehensive yet easy-to-digest 15 minutes. So join me for ABC News Daily. Hear it now on the ABC Listen app. Oil and gas company Santos has today released its full-year financial results, recording a significant profit, but down on the previous year. Joined this year by Dan Fitzgerald. What's happened? Yeah, so Santos has put out its financial results. It's a US dollar reporting company. It's recorded an underlying profit of $1.4 billion US. So... Big lot of Huge. money there, uh, but that is down 42% or almost a billion dollars on the previous year. Uh, Santos says this is due to lower oil and LNG prices, oil and gas prices, and lower production compared to that 2022 year. Right. It's a massive profit, just not as big as the one before. That's it. Understood. Uh, Santos also gave a bit of an update on its Barossa gas project out to the north of the Tiwi Islands. It says that project is now 67% complete with first gas expected in the third quarter of 2025. It says more than 50% of the pipeline from Barossa to Darwin has been laid. It also says the first gas well has been completed and the second well is well underway. Um, Santos says that initial Flow rates from that gas well are in line with expectations and carbon dioxide content is at the low end of the expected range. But for some content there, the expected range 
for that CO2 content is somewhere between 16 to 20%. Mm. So even if it is at that low end, it's some of the Still most a, it's a carbon-intensive yeah. gas in Australia. Speaking of emissions, Santos also released details about its climate impact in the last financial year. Yeah, Santos has an annual sustainability and climate report. Some quick figures from that. Uh, in 2023, Santos produced nearly 5 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent in its operations. And it's scope three emissions, those emissions that are made when its customers buy or burn its gas, was almost 22 million tonnes of CO2. That's more than the entire Northern Territory. Okay, thank you for keeping us up to date, Dan Fitzgerald. And as we go to air this afternoon, shares in Santos are down 1.2%. Still lots to come in the second half of the Country Hour, including the latest news from the North Australia Savannah Fire Forum. And we'll be speaking to the Weather Bureau in five minutes' time. There's been big rain again along that WANT border. If you've got a question for the Bureau, send it through on that text line. And I'll see you back here in five. Hello, I'm Frank Shadrick from 17 Station. You're listening to ABC Country Hour, and I'm training the young youth of program. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. In a moment, you'll be getting the latest news from day two of the North Australia Savannah Fire Forum. And in the second half of the Country Hour, we'll also be joining the team at the Royal Flying Doctor Service for some training in Alice Springs. It's so important that everybody knows what this patient's in for from the beginning all the way through to the point that they arrive in the hospital um, and that there's a little bit of shared understanding about the challenges for each of the craft groups that are involved. Lots coming up on the program, but first let's go to the Weather Bureau. Sally Cutter is there this afternoon. Sally, again, some decent rain along the WA border. What have been some of the best totals up to 9 o'clock this morning? Okay, the best one was at Legion with 158 millimetres. The, there's a bit of a drop down after that. Keep River got 76 millimetres, 99 at Border Creek, the 42 at Saddle Creek, the well, 41 West Baines River, 56 at the Upper Victoria River, and that, they're probably the, the bigger totals out through there. We did see, also see some storms down in the Simpson district overnight. And your voice managed to get eight millimetres out of that. So it's most of the rain is now easing off, but it's, it's good to see that we've managed to get some of the, the rain down further south. And here we've actually got picked up two millimetres as well. Yep. Um, just via social media, Nicholson Cattle Station's reporting another 86 millimetres on top of the sort of 120 plus that they got the day prior. Flora Valley's reporting 176 millimetres in one day. Yukaronage Station in the Barclay is reporting 147 over two days. And just across the border, Halls Creek Airport's had 121 millimetres and Mullabulla Station. Uh, it's had close to 100 millimetres there as well. So yeah, this is all thanks to ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln. Where is that system right now, Sally? Okay, Lincoln is now almost on the coast bet- between Derby and Columbaroos, probably the, is in that vicinity, is heading off to the the west. So we're looking at it going basically parallel to the the Pilbara coast and then there's also now issued a watch between Roeburn and Ningaloo. So we're expecting it to redevelop into a cyclone, but the, as far as the territory is concerned, we're, going to, we're not going to see those showers and storms totally clear. 
they're still going to be around. They're just not going to to bring quite as much rainfall as we have been seeing. Because even places like Rabbit Flats are 134 millimetres in the last three days. Mm. So there's there's been widespread, very large totals. And just give a little bit of a break to get everything to drain. Hopefully, it's open the, the the roads or open some of the roads up again. Yeah, but luckily, I think we've escaped a lot of the flooding. Yeah, and sorry, just to go back to the X cyclone, what's the likelihood of it now reforming off that Kimberley coast? Uh, there's a high chance of it reforming, but it's still going to be more north of Karratha. North of Karratha. Any chance it could swing around and bring moisture back towards Central Australia? Uh, it, it's, if it, we're expecting it to redevelop into a cyclone, and so it's sort of doing a, going parallel and then diving onto the coasts around that Exmouth area, and then it will come back over the southwest part of WA, and which means it's caught up with the trough. So that might see some moisture being dragged back down, it's a, but that's really a week away. So it's, it's just really depends on exactly where it comes across, how much it gets down into those southern districts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, for the capital, Darwin, do you have any good news for residents? Because it's been pretty humid, hot, and not much to talk about. Yeah, that probably sums it up. The We do have the trough redeveloping over the top end, so we may see squall lines over the, to late in the week over the weekend. So as the, the trough develops and you've got the, the ridge in the middle levels so higher up in the atmosphere so increasing. So we could see... But not not guaranteed, but there's a chance that we could see those squally showers or squally storms come rolling through. And then as that trough develops, we are seeing the monsoon increase again over the winds over the RFUC. So that's probably the best chance for those in the northern parts of the top end with that trough right along the north coast. Okay. And I'm just looking at the Alice Springs radar this afternoon. Looks like there's a, a, a decent patch of cloud and rain right on the Queensland border. Sort of south of yeah, Avalon Downs as we go to air. Yeah, that, that's what went through the device early this morning. Yep. So it's just been working its way northwards and it's it's still dropping rain. So there's the areas that probably didn't quite get the rain out of ex-Lincoln is hopefully going to get a get little some. bit out of that. Okay. Um, to our friends on the Plenty Highway who were desperate for rain, I hope you've managed to jag a bit. Anything else we need to be aware of this afternoon, Sally? No, that's probably it for this afternoon. Things are calming down. As I said, it's a bit of a lull, but like always, we'll keep an ear out for any severe thunderstorm warnings that we do issue. The so the, the broader widespread warning for the threat is decreased. There's still the flood warning for the Daly River, but it's been now more in case we just keep an ear out in case we do see any of those storms starting to sort of just sit in the one spot for heavy rainfall. Yeah, thanks for your time this afternoon. That's okay. Sally Cutter at the Weather Bureau. It is 11 past one. Just quickly on the topic of water, let's get a dam update. Damn. 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 Yeah, I can tell you this afternoon, the Darwin River Dam is sitting at 100.89% capacity, so it's overflowing. And over on the WANT border, the famous Lake Argyle, all of this rain on places like Nicholson and places like Mistake Creek, all that water runs towards Lake Argyle and it is huge and perhaps has broken a gauge because the last recording 
for Lake Argyle's capacity was on the 18th of February. And at that stage, that's even before all of this rain the last few days, it was sitting at 11,699 gigalitres. Try and wrap your head around that. I'm Emily Hoffman, and I love chasing chunky skinks in the top end. And you are listening to the Country Hour. And it is day two of the North Australia Savannah Fire Forum. This event's brought in about 400 people. They're all at the Darwin Convention Centre talking all things fire, talking all things carbon projects. Dan Fitzgerald was down there this morning. What's been happening, Dan? There are a few pollies at the conference this morning, Matt. The NT's Minister for the Environment, Kate Warden. Then the Federal Member for Solomon, Luke Gosling. They both talked about their government support for this growing industry. There was also a fair bit of discussion about some of the nitty-gritty of carbon methodologies and how they're also always being constantly updated. Uh, One of the interesting points raised from someone was about the potential to have carbon projects with a floating price. So at the moment, when carbon projects start, they're locked into a price for a whole number of years. So there's projects out there that are getting about $16 a carbon credit, whereas if you look at the current spot price... The open market. It's about $35. So they're getting significantly under market value. So there's questions raised about... um, potentially having some sort of a floating price. The Department of Environment is sort of looking at it, but there's no nothing permanently put in place at this stage. Um, also this morning and, and late yesterday, one of the features of the Savannah Fire problem, uh, Forums are all the ranger groups getting up on stage and talking a bit about their year that was, showing a bunch of photos and you know, really telling their stories. Uh, one of those was the Mimol Rangers from central Arnhem Land. They're one of the longer-running groups. They had a pretty successful year last year, but they did have to fight a few late-season fires mm. to try and stop them uh, when they are going right late in the year. I had a chat with Rangers Joe Ashley and Nikki Sattler about what it's like trying to fight fires out in Arnhem Land in the build-up. It's a very hard job, but um, we end of the day we still end up we will get it done because obviously we um, don't want the fire obviously to get to places that we don't want it to um, to burn. Obviously, you got a lot of sacred sites as well, and obviously you got a lot of wildlife as well. You want to protect um, from the hot fire. So you see that there's a fire out in the back of Mimol country. What do you do? What happens? Usually we'll try to like, do a lot of asset, like burn around like areas that we'll try to protect. And then once we see that fire, we'll go put them out eh? with all the blowers or backburn. Yeah, you've got these blowers that are on your backpacks. You're in there with safety equipment on. How hot does it get? It gets real hot. Too hot to be true. But yeah... Like, we walk up hills, down hills, rocks, okay, yeah. Yeah, you normally get about, like, about 40 or plus, I think, um, I think it was, four, yeah, about 40 or plus, um, like, heat wave as well, um, and we do a lot of, um, we have a lot of breaks and, and obviously a lot of um, exchange with the boys, like, we'll, we'll swap out the, the guys that was out there for one or two weeks fighting the fire and we get a rest so we go back obviously back to the base 
and obviously work around the base. But we do a little bit, of, but there'll be a, other fires will come up, so we'll go and do other jobs, other fires to put out. Um, yeah, it's non non-stop. We have that last year, so we were fighting like three or two fires, and guys was like um, everywhere. Like you know, we have at least ten boys at a camp. Obviously, we're fighting the fire for like three months, and we got uh, other um, members as well. To um, like the other rangers from other um, areas, uh, our members, close members, and yeah, obviously we work with them. And how did you go? Were you successful in putting out some fires? Yeah, and end of the day, I, th- I think it was us which is um, put out the fire. Like obviously we're there first, and we always finish it. <laughs> so that's what we obviously been known for, I think. And obviously, which which is really good, and we're sort of proud in that um, as well. Um, there's a lot of rangers talks about mimal a lot, and they know the meaning of the mimal. The mimal it means fire in Dalabon, which is my mother's language. And do you have a good support crew when you're out there fighting those fires to make sure you got enough feed and and water and stuff back at camp? Yeah, we'll try set we'll camp good way. Yeah. And sometimes when we put out that fire, like that bird too, we got. Which is on the badge. Yeah. Yep. Karakan. Yeah, tell us about that, that bird. Uh, that, when you're trying to put out a fire, that bird sometimes trying to light them too. Yeah, you'll see him flying around, but it's a bit sneaky. But um, it's very, very clever. Like, you probably won't even see him do it in front of you or in an in a act. It probably, he'll, he'll do it when you're not even watching or not even aware that he's picked up a stick and obviously thrown somewhere in a, in a patch of grass and and then he just sits there and watch obviously from the tree and then when it starts burning then he'll obviously obviously he's doing his, his own thing he's obviously he's, he's hunting for his food as well um, and obviously my family obviously my uncle obviously they do have the, um, the song for the birds so you know it, it's a really respected obviously um animal yeah you obviously respect it but do you get frustrated sometimes when they go light another one it's obviously doing its thing so we have to just just keep fighting the fire um we we can't do anything about him but he is he's doing his thing pretty much so it's the middle of the wet season now what sort of work are you doing to get ready for the coming early burning season We'll do a lot, lot of service on, on our blowers and, um, you know, make sure our, everything is all working um, properly, um, chainsaws and all that. Um, and we'll make sure, yeah, that we obviously we're ready for when there's a first fire to put out. Yeah, we'll do a lot of training, like renew our head again, refreshing up. And you two are one of uh, a number of Mimo Rangers in here at the Savannah Fire Forum Conference for a couple of days. What are you learning? Learning a lot of different things, eh? Like other people, like all the other rangers, how they... How they manage their fire. Yep, and... Yeah, you, you see that um, they got different sort of... Um, what do you call it? The, the, the landscape that they obviously fight the fire. You know, you got Spinifac, you got an island, um, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a bit different than obviously what we tackle and fight the fire 
That's Joe Ashley and Nikki Sattler from the Mimmel Rangers based in central Arnhem Land, speaking to Dan Fitzgerald at the Savannah Fire Forum, which is on this week in Darwin. Hi, I'm Tim Burrow, and I represent the sand, rock and gravel extractors of the Northern Territory, and you're listening to the Country Hour. And just repeating as we go to air this afternoon, the Stewart Highway is open, but to high-clearance four-wheel drives only between Renner Springs and Tannock Creek. So there's water over the road in various locations in that stretch. So just be aware of that. And likewise, on the Barclay Highway, it's also open to high-clearance four-wheel drives only between the Stewart Highway turn-off and the Barclay Homestead. So if you own a little two-wheel drive, and we're planning on doing a bit of driving this afternoon. Just be aware of that situation. We've been told some small vehicles have been washed off the highway already this week. And police are asking people to be aware of these warnings. Right across the Territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. We're off to do some training with the RFDS next. In a heartwarming new season. I'm a bit shy and I'm fairly risk averse. I'm 22 and I'm ready to start dating. Meet the singles looking for love. It's just really scary. I am unique, fabulous, don't forget that. I think I'm crushing a little bit. I would like to kiss someone. The brand new season of Better Date Than Never. No tons. Stream all episodes now on ABC iView. Always free, always entertaining. Well, it takes a lot of effort and coordination to get patients from remote parts of Australia and fly them to hospital. There's the staff at bush clinics, there's retrieval teams, pilots, engineers who look after the plane, paramedics, and of course the hospital staff themselves. This month, 21 medical staff have completed training in Alice Springs to understand the roles of everyone in that process to make the journey smooth as possible for patients. Victoria Ellis went along to the Royal Flying Doctors Service base to learn more. Yeah, so this is the, the hangar. Um, and over here is the, the PC-24, which is the, the Medi-Jet. Hi, my name's Dan Adams. I am the director of the retrieval service at Alice Springs Hospital. Can we go over and have a look at the stretchers? We can go over and have a look at the stretchers. There's a patient over here. Hello. So this is a good example of the group of people that need to get involved in uh, retrieval. So we've got Bronte, who's a flight nurse. We've got a couple of paramedics who have just brought the patient out from the hospital. Um, and, you know, so we've got a, a mixture of RFDS equipment and St John's equipment here. Um, and you know, the patient's about to be loaded up onto, um, onto the plane. You're about to go up in the sky, okay? Nice okay. and safe. In situations just like this, you have just been practicing how to do them, how to safely get patients. Can you tell me a little bit about the training? Yeah, so we, every, time, every uh, time we bring in some new flight doctors, so that's uh, every six months, we will do a three-day training course. Um, we call it the CART course, or the Central Australian Retrieval Training Course, uh, where we... Uh, run people through the environment which for, for most of the registrars is a new space for them uh, and, and explain the sorts of problems that they're likely to experience here in Central Australia specifically uh, and the system in which they're going to be operating. 
What are some of the problems that are unique to Central Australia for air retrievals? Oh, so um, I guess we have huge distances. We have a, a huge catchment, uh, and so we have a long uh, time between the call for help and arriving, and then also a long time between arriving and getting to a place of safety like the hospital. Um, and we often have patients who present uh, unwell uh, with, uh, I guess, it, the, the classic would be sepsis. Um, so we have a lot of patients who present, you know, as a, as a, as a young, otherwise fairly healthy person um, who has uh, a, a fever and an infection, low blood pressure, um, and they, they need to be stabilised in the clinic by the, the remote area nurses or, or sometimes doctor who's out there. Um, and, and then we need to continue to keep them safe um, and, uh, and well on the way in. So there's three medical environments there. There's the clinic and community, there is the airplane, and then there is the hospital. So how important is collaboration between the hospital staff and everybody else to get from that patient safely from community to hospital? Yeah, so it's a really complicated patient journey. You know, from the point that the patient arrives at the clinic um, to being assessed by the remote area nurse out there and having some initial treatment done by them um, through to then communicating with the coordination doctor in MRAC at the hospital um, through to being uh, having the plane task to go out and get the patient um, and then the clinic having staff having to find uh, a transportation team to bring the the flight crew over to the clinic to assess the patient and then bring the patient back out to the plane and then getting on the plane and flying in and then um, having St John's uh, ambulance come out to the airport and pick the patient up off the tarmac to then driving all the way into the hospital. We've got a lot of different people who are involved in that process and it's pretty complicated. So what does that say then for the importance of having the training? Look, it, it's, it's so important that Everybody knows what this patient's in for from the beginning all the way through to the point that they arrive in the hospital um, and that there's a little bit of shared understanding about um, the challenges for each of the craft groups that are involved, the paramedics, the remote area nurses, the flight nurses, the flight doctors, um, all need to be able to share uh, an understanding of where the patient has come from and where they're going. So I'm Jackie, I'm a flight nurse with the RFDS, I'm a registered nurse and midwife. What's different about the course this year compared to other trainings that you've done? I would say that every course that comes around, we will have a meeting a couple of months out and make sure that we're happy with the course content and where it's at and if there was anything that needed improvement from um, the last years. Obviously COVID, when that came around, um, gave us quite a, a different type of um, education that we had to direct to make sure that everyone was able to do COVID safe cares. Um, so yeah, ever since then it's just been evolving and changing to uh, make sure that it's uh, updated with the most current clinical practice. Why do you think it's so important that this training happens and that it happens re regularly? I would have to say prior to becoming a flight nurse I probably didn't have an understanding of just how many people are involved in that journey and how grateful I am uh, that so many people are because if everyone's doing their job well and right that patient care is beautiful throughout and they really do receive an amazing service in Central Australia because of it. 
That is Jackie Jones, who is a flight nurse with the Royal Flying Doctor Service, speaking there to Victoria Ellis. Where would we be without the RFDS? It is time now in the country hour to head to the sale yards. Of all the latest prices out of Dublin, here is Elsie Adamo. Numbers increased this week as agents offered 527 live weight and open auction cattle, along with 125 open auction calves. Quality was mixed with more two-score cattle in the offering. Villa steers sold from 240 to 290 cents, as villa heifers ranged from 192 to 208 cents per kilogram. Yearling steers ranged from 224 to 306 cents, as yearling heifers made from 178 to 280 cents per kilogram. Grown steers sold from 158 to 306 cents, with grown heifers ranging from 178 to 200 cents per kilogram. Bulls sold from 200 to 242 cents per kilogram. This has been Elsie Adamo filling in for John Traeger for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that, Elsie. In the live export trade, the big story this week is that Indonesia has issued import permits for 2024, so the trade is getting back on track. Looks like the Brahmin Express has loaded up with some cattle at Darwin Port and is on its way to Indonesia as we go to air. And I can tell you that Western Australia has now loaded its first shipment for the year to Indonesia. The Girolando Express has been loaded up at Fremantle, and it's now on its way to Lampung. So the trade getting back underway. Uh, thanks to everyone who got involved in today's program. Got a text here from Anna. Uh, she feels Dibble should go and double-check the Stewart Highway and that perhaps water over the road isn't as deep as being reported. Mm, stay up to date via the Road Report NT and, of course, the Weather Bureau and the ABC, your emergency broadcaster. Enjoy your afternoon and, of course, keep it rural.